0: You're tuning into the Real Estate Diversification Podcast, hosted by trusted and experienced real estate attorneys who are also seasoned real estate investors themselves. Are you ready to explore unique real estate investing opportunities? Ready to learn about emerging trends and new ideas? Your hosts will help you understand the practical and legal complexities of a myriad of real estate investments so that you can maximize your potential and achieve financial freedom. Now, listen in and get ready to learn. Get ready to learn.
1: Welcome back, Red Podcast Nation. I am Jonathan Gilmore. Today, I'm going to be throwing it to Ferd Neiman. This is part of our Legacy podcast series. Ferd is going to be presenting a great topic on real estate. Uh, This is underwriting property taxes. This is a first part of a two-part series. Uh, The second part being property tax appeals. We'll have that in our next episode of our Legacy series. But this one is underwriting property taxes. It affects, you know, everything almost in the asset classes that touch real property, Uh, many of the topics that we discuss on this podcast uh, regularly. So if you want to learn how to not just calculate property taxes, but how to underwrite them with your deal, this is the podcast for you. I'll see you on the other side. Enjoy.
2: Here again today with another episode and today we're gonna to talk about something that's really near and dear to me talking about property tax projections which is really part one of a two-part series here and the number two will be property tax appeals because the two kind of go hand-in-glove I feel like in today's market the uh, cap rates are compressing and prices are going through the roof so one of the things you really got to do a good job with is doing your property tax projections for most of us, professional investors and operators, we we look to either buy a stabilized asset that probably has stabilized operations and property taxes, or more in my case, I like to buy assets that are kind of uh, bruised and broken and need to be improved. Well, whenever I do that, I hope to be more efficient from most most areas of management. Frankly, I like you know lower management costs, a submeter of water push the rents, cut the expenses, just really try to uh, you know negotiate trash contracts, really anywhere I can to try to get better insurance bids, all kinds of stuff, to try to increase my net operating income. But the one area that is likely going to lead to higher expenses for me is property taxes. And the reason for this is, by and large, property tax appraisers, property tax assessors nationwide have values that are lower than the current market value. And they typically do not increase the value over time with inflation. In particular, mobile home parks are largely owned, majority owned still at this point, by mom and pa. Well, if mom and pa have owned it for 40 years, there's been no sale to like trigger the assessor to go do his or her job and go reassess the property. And I've got a lot of experience in appraisal and as an assessment. I was previously the property tax assessor for Jackson County, Missouri, here in Kansas City. So I had about 325,000 real estate parcels that I was responsible for. And I had a 70-person team and $6 million operating budget, $8 million overall budget, and lots of consultants. And it was uh, it was a big job. But what I learned was most all of my predecessors had no stomach to increase property values. And really, statewide, in the state of Missouri, that was the case. And the reason was, they didn't really want to get the heat. They didn't want to have to deal with appeals. They didn't want to lose reelection. I was, I think there are 115 counties in Missouri. I was one of one that was appointed. The other 114 were elected, so I didn't have to play the politics game to become a county official. But these other guys do. So they don't want to jack the values up and piss off their friends and family and piss off the people that have helped them get elected. So that has all led to current market values being below what they really are in the real marketplace. And there's a great risk when you sell a property, when you buy a property, excuse me, that the taxes can increase. Because if you're buying a property for a million dollars and that's what it's really worth, but the assessor has it on the books for $250,000, it's possible he's going to give you the, hey, welcome to the neighborhood call where they, they, they chase your sale and they increase your property taxes. So you have to really look into that before you buy and really during your underwriting so you can properly account for that. So kind of that being said, I'm gonna jump into some of the techniques and taxes that I use when underwriting property taxes. The first thing I do is I look at the current market value in accordance with what the assessor tells me. If the assessor says this property is worth 250,000, and I know I'm paying a million, like, okay, it's possible I'm going to have a problem coming out of the pipe. So I look at my purchase price, Man, million, that's the second step. The third thing is really to look at is, is this a disclosure state? So like in Missouri here, it's not a disclosure state statewide, but Jackson County and St. Louis County do have what's called a certificate of value that's a disclosure document. And what that does is, if I buy this property for a million dollars, the county assessor is going to get a notice of it. And he or she may decide to get out in the field and take another look to dust off their their paperwork and sharpen their pencil and I might get a million dollar valuation. Well obviously that's going to impact my net operating income post closing, so I need to take that into consideration. Uh, other states like Kansas, it's a disclosure state nation, you know the statewide so that's another problem. state by state, you got to look at the code, look at the rules, look at your local jurisdiction and see if there's a disclosure process. If there's not, then it's you can be a lot more aggressive in your underwriting because it's a lot less likely that you're going to get hit with an increase. Sure, assessors could still uh, find out about the sale. I typically put a confidentiality confidentiality provision in my purchase contract that precludes and prevents the seller from being able to disclose it, except as required by law by a governmental agency. So in a case where it's not disclosure... They can still report the sale to the IRS, but that doesn't get to the county assessor. I don't want them to report it. I don't want them to go down to the bowling alley and be bragging to all their friends they sold their trailer park for a million bucks and they're rich because it could come back to bite me. And typically, if there's not disclosure, the assessors don't find out. I mean, I just, I know, you know, from being in the business, I didn't find out sales. I wasn't, I wasn't, I was too busy doing my regular day job. I wasn't out talking to every broker, especially you know, mobile home park brokers were few and far between back then, and, and at least in my metropolitan area, uh, really didn't. I didn't even know about any sales going on in the mobile home park space. So, next, when you know your market value, you know what you're paying. You know you got it's going to get disclosed. You got to start to calculate the impact, the tax dollars, and this is a. A relatively simple formula, and again, it's going to depend on by state. But I'm, so I'm going to use my my example here of a million dollar purchase. So I take a million and I multiply that by the fraction that is the assessment ratio. And assessment ratio comes about because state legislatures or perhaps the state constitution determined a long time ago that, or maybe recently, that they want to have disparate and different burdens to pay the property tax bill for the government. In Missouri, uh, there was a, the general will to have farmers pay less and have business owners pay more. So the assessment ratio is 12% for ag, uh, 19% for residential, and 32% for commercial. So you know 32 is bigger than 19, right? So you want to be residential. And mobile home parks in Missouri are considered residential, and so are even apartment complexes. Even And this is distinct and kind of irrespective of the zoning classification that it's, this is an assessment classification. And this is kind of, there's state law on this, but there's also can be some subjectivity at times of the assessor. But I take my million times point one nine for 19%, and then I get, that equals 190,000. That is my assessed value. Then I take that number divided by 1,000 to convert it into mils. Mil is a, is a unit of measurement, it's basically one 1,000th. So that gets me 190. Now I need to take it times my levy rate. And I'm going to use the levy rate of 92, which is kind of typical in this region. And the levy rate is comprised of all the individual tax levies that, the, that certain government agencies are allowed to charge. For example, your school district, your fire district, your library, your city, your county, your road district, et cetera. This is going to differ greatly from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, so you got to look this up. Your county assessor will have all this information, and, and so should your county collector. So I take my 190 times 92, and it's 17480 that's how much my property taxes could be, which is exactly four times higher than they are currently for mom and pa. So, that's, so I, to, to kind of compare that, I take that as a function into 17480 into my purchase price of $1 million, That's 1.7%. So residential Missouri, it's about 1.7% tax burden. Illinois, for example, I own mobile home parks in Illinois. It's going to be higher. Some states, you know, Texas, Florida, they don't have an income tax. To, you're likely going to pay higher property taxes. And if you make income, if you're a surgeon and you live in Texas, that's great. But if you're a landlord and you own real estate and you live out of state, eh, you're not saving on the income taxes as much, but you're getting hit with the uh, real estate taxes. So you just got to know your jurisdiction to calculate your pain. Because obviously, if I do this 17800 excuse me, 17480 if I if that's an expense, that's going to hurt me for my appraisal, for a refinance, or for a sale from valuation. If I take that at a, at a, a five cap, for example, that's a $349,000 decrease in valuation versus if I was tax-exempt. You're never going to be tax-exempt, but you still don't want to pay more taxes than you really have to. Let's be honest. Taxes are you know, necessary, you know, death and taxes. Well, I don't want to pay as many taxes. I don't want to die quite yet either. But anyway, back to this regularly scheduled program. I start to look at what is the probability that this tax increase is going to happen and going to occur. So I have to look at a couple things. I look at when is the reassessment cycle and how frequent is the cycle? So for example, here in Missouri, property is reassessed every odd numbered year. So 2015, 2017, 2019, 2021. In Kansas, it's reassessed every year. In Illinois, it's reassessed every four years. And then sometimes the reassessment has has phases in the entire entire property record, or all the properties are not assessed in a given cycle. So, for example, when I was the county assessor, we had a two-year requirement, but we were in a part of a, a state tax commission approved six-year plan, which basically meant we only did one-third or did a close review of one-third of the properties in a two-year cycle, so you've got potentially six years before somebody shines a flashlight on you. So, in that example, if mobile home parks were last year, and I'm buying this year, I might have up to five years of you know you know ability to escape review. And at that point, maybe maybe they forget to look for you at all. Versus, like in Kansas, they look at it every year; they may catch you. And Kansas is a disclosure state, so you're much more likely to have an increase, I think, in property taxes. Buying this million dollar park that's assessed, at, that's, that's appraised at 250 by the assessor, you're much more likely to have a tax increase in the state of Kansas than you are in the state of Missouri or the state of Illinois. Now, again, doesn't mean your tax dollars won't be impacted based on just one factor because, like in Illinois, the property tax rates are typically higher, the assessment ratio is 33 and a third. For residential, as opposed to nineteen percent, so you got to look at all these factors. But I basically just I just look at the re, the risk of reassessment. And then here's another great opportunity to assess your personal risk: is look at were there any other sales or similar sales? So I mean, if there was another mom par park that sold last year for million dollars and it was on the books for two fifty, go see what happened to the appraisal from the from the county. If the county increased at two point two percent like the rest of the region then you probably have less risk. If the county chased that sale, and I'll get into chasing sales or spot appraisals, which are kind of uh, verboten in the industry, but happen all the time. I'll get into that in the next episode, talking about tax appeals. But ultimately, if it, if something happened to the last guy, it's probably going to happen to you. doesn't mean you can't win an appeal. We'll get into that. But I, I I look at the similar sales, and then I also look at comps. If there's no sales, just look at comps, and not necessarily sales comps, but other valuation comps. And what are they valued at per pad? If this... If this $1 million sale is a 10-lot mobile home park, okay, well, you're paying 100000 per pad. What are the other properties in the books for? The other properties are in the books for $5,000 a pad or 50000 a pad, and you're going to pay a hundred. In the event they do increase you, you're going to be setting yourself up for a future tax appeal because tax appeals can be won based on a number of categories, but really, is the valuation not fair and is it not accurate? So it's certainly accurate if you pay a dollars and that's the real value, but it may not be fair relative to your peers. So really just looking into the, the, all those factors will give you a, a feel for the probability whether or not the, the pain is coming. And, and then you can, you can kind of blend that into how much you want to underwrite that pain. Next, you could call the county assessor. Now I would do this anonymously and I would probably not start with a mobile home park. I would call and say, hey, I'm thinking about buying an apartment or I'm thinking about buying a multifamily property. It's on the books for two hundred fifty thousand. I'm, I'm thinking about paying a million. Could you help me figure out what my property taxes are going to look like a year from now? And sometimes they'll come out right out and tell you, "Oh, we're going to well, we'll put it on for a million. That's what you paid." Sometimes they'll say, "Well, I don't know. I mean, how big is this one property? We you know we kind of do mass appraisal, you know, and, and assessors do mass appraisal. And in, in more sophisticated counties, they do computer-assisted mass appraisal, CAMA, which is basically statistical analysis and regression analysis. Because they don't have the manpower to go reassess 325,000 parcels. So we, were, we only had, I don't remember the number when I was the assessor, call it $20 of budget per parcel. Not very much compared to you get a fee appraisal for a commercial property, it's three or 4,000 bucks. For a residential house, it's $350. Well, those guys are doing a more detailed micro level analysis, which actually may not be more accurate than statistical analysis, but that'll be a discussion for another day. Um, so you could call the assessor, you could call local appraisers or tax appeal specialists, and you could. There are generally tax reps or tax appeal people in every every jurisdiction, and ask them their opinion. Uh, number seven, um, you could just be subjective. Okay, this is a little risky, but you can be like, okay, you know what? I'm not gonna I'm not gonna underwrite this at a at a four x property tax increase. If I do, it's gonna kill my deal. Um, you know, do I so I just do a straight increase to four X? Well, you could do that, but you might miss a lot of deals. But it's you know, it's better to miss a bad deal than buy a bad deal. So there's definitely some some uh trains of thought on that. But at the same time, is there some sort of blend of subjectivity when you factor all these things together? You know, I've done that sometimes, to be honest, and I know there are people out there who're gonna disagree with this and say, You you have to go the straight increase or you're gonna be in trouble. I bought mobile home parks for the last six, seven years and I really only had happened I think once where my property taxes went up substantially and that's one that I I paid double what the market value was from the appraiser and I'm in the process of a tax appeal on that and I am very confident I'm going to win that tax appeal and and well, then I will have zero you know nightmare scenarios but again for underwriting you probably should incur- you probably should underwrite some level of increase maybe 20 25% I don't know about 400% 300% really to each their own but what i do is unlike on everything i continually evaluate okay i continue to evaluate the risks and um just the fact pattern and, get, and gather more data uh, and the last kind of combination I, said, I think for uh underwriting i think is as i say strategies to mitigate the risk and there's really kind of you know four four ways to do this the first would be you know you appeal the property taxes pre-closing this is pretty rare, but some states, like in Missouri, for example, if I appeal and the assessor settles or I win, that'll lock in the, the rate and the amount for the next year. And if it happens in a non-reassessment year, I get two years. Or sometimes you can even get three years, depending on how the, that's it's set up with the assessor, which may or may not be valid, but some assessors do it where you can get a three-year freeze. So you could negotiate for this in your purchase contract and then underwrite it pre-closing. I've actually done that before, but... I don't know if I've ever heard anybody else even mentioning it, so I don't know that it's like a best in class strategy versus a keep it in your hip pocket because you may need to do it and it may be a benefit to you. Um, So the second strategy to mitigate your risk would be allocate some of the purchase price to non-real estate items. So this is one of the key provisions in my purchase and sales agreement is that I get the right as the buyer to allocate the purchase price. And I can allocate, let's say I'm paying the million dollars, I could allocate 100,000 to mobile homes. I could allocate 300,000 to Goodwill. Now, if this is in a non-reporting state, then that's not necessary, okay? You just do it exactly right down the fairway, what makes the most sense. But sometimes there's some subjectivity. If I'm paying a million, maybe I'm paying a million, but that's worth a million, two or three or four to me. Okay, well, now I've got more pieces to add up than the total pie. So I can maybe say, oh, I'm going to put some more here, some more there. It's got to be reasonable. You got to also be ready to be subject to IRS audit at some point. And then we can get into this for purposes of cost segregation and tax depreciation and amortization at a later episode, but ultimately you could do some of that and just recognize there's an income tax impact down the road. But for purposes of if we're just looking at property taxes today, the the lower amount on the real estate components—real estate land and real estate improvements and real estate buildings—the the better from a tax appraisal. Okay, number three under this category of strategies to mitigate risk would be try to flag the sale as invalid. And by this, I mean when I was using computer-assisted mass appraisal, it was you know it was a big computer program, right? Data in, data out. So garbage in, garbage out. So assessors don't want to put in non-valid sales. So we had on our Certificate of Value, which was our sales disclosure form, we had a checklist. And that checklist basically gave you like 10 or 12 options you could check that would deem this not a market sale. Things like it was sold to a related party, or it was inherited, or it was bought at a foreclosure, or it was a partial sale. You only sold a partial interest. I sold a mobile home park in Illinois, I don't know, three years ago, and I didn't sell 100%. I sold like 97% and I kept 3% and it was part of the deal. And then I also bought four other parks with these guys at the same time. So as a result, I was a business partner, it was a partial sale. I was left on as the manager, and that was continued. That was part of the deal. So there was that other compensation and and incentives for me. So that's not a normal normal transaction. Now the price they paid was a normal price, but the assessor doesn't know that. So if I check that box, partial sale, or if I, there was per, another option is distress sale, or personal property was included, mobile homes. Maybe you throw in the pool table, just to you know. Maybe you seriously say, hey, I'm going to throw in the pool table for an extra dollar then you get to check that check that box and then um then you it could get thrown out of the computer program because assessors have sometimes have too much work where they're or or too lazy where they're not going to go dig into these sales and just throw it out well that means your sales not in the big algorithm but it also means it's not going to get specific scrutiny which can let you kind of live another day now you can't lie on this form either generally it's under some form of affidavit at closing um and again, this is largely irrelevant if it's a non reporting state. Non reporting state, man, I would be really a lot more aggressive on underwriting my property taxes and my deal. the fourth strategy, and this one's gonna be controversial as heck, I can tell you that. But it's 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 by the LLC membership units. And I've only done this once, but it was actually a related party. Um, but it happens more in like retail and some other you know, restaurant, build a suit type projects, but by by buying the membership units, so for example, I'm buying this for a million bucks, instead of buying the real estate from John Smith, LLC, I'm going to talk to Mr. Smith and say, hey, let me buy the membership rights to your company, John Smith, LLC. Now, this doesn't work very easily if John Smith has 50 properties in that LLC, okay? This is going to be, but most sophisticated people, and it's true mom, pa, it's not going to work. But if it's a semi-professional or professional owner-operator, they probably only have one property in the LLC. You could buy the membership units. Now, some people, some lawyers, but really the non-lawyers in particular would say, don't ever do that. It's a huge nightmare. You have risk. And there are some risks, okay? But I think there's ways to mitigate the risk. So one risk is environmental. If John Smith LLC did not get a phase one environmental, then you're not going to have the rights to be the buyer in good faith and get the benefit of that. Now, you could still get your own phase one environmental that will protect you um, to some degree, at least you'll know about it, but it's not going to be the same as if you were protected as the named titled person. Um, so that's a risk. Another risk is bankability. I mean, your lender has to understand, hey, I'm not, you know, I'm not buying real estate. I'm buying membership units. Now, the membership units of the LLC would have the rights and ownership of the real estate. So a quasi-sophisticated or sophisticated lender should get that, but it could cause a little bit of challenge. And sometimes you got programs that are just lending programs that are so rigid that they say you must fit in the box you know and then if you don't fit in the box you don't play so that's an issue to get over some of the indemn- uh, environmental stuff and just in general you want to have a mutual or at least for the buyer you want to have an indemnification provision pre-closing so if, if mr john smith did not rent a mobile home to somebody because they were white black or purple that's going to be a violation of the fha so in and HUD, and HUD, HUD housing laws and stuff. So I don't want to the day after closing get sued because somebody who's purple comes up and says I discriminated or my company that I now own discriminated. So you would need to have a mutual indemnification of the date of the membership interest transfer. And that's one of the reasons that why I'm okay with the strategy because if you put that in there, you've got some protection. Now the protection has to have some teeth, which I would generally like to say would be personal, personal liability and recourse to John Smith, the person. And if John Smith the person doesn't have any money, or he dies, or he hide, you know he goes you know goes out of the town and you can't ever find him, that may not be worth its weight. wait. So it's a risk, but it could be a it could be worth it to potentially save on property taxes. I know here in Kansas City I was working on a retail deal, and it was a multi tenant restaurant building, a couple national tenants had so good credit, so the, the cost of construction was way lower than the eventual investment sale price. So once we sold it, the price went through the roof um, on the property taxes. It was in Kansas. They chased the sale, and the new owner was stuck with this huge property tax bill. And eventually the tenants um, started to go belly up, and national tenants, and they subleased the space because they couldn't afford the the taxes, which in retail is typically passed through to tenants on a triple-net basis. But that's for a career of yesterday so yesterday. So anyway, indemnification provisions can work. The only downside, I think, for the seller is he can't really, he or she can't really do a 1031 exchange because you tend, uh, the membership interests are intangible personal property. And before the 2000, 2017 Trump tax law changes, you could do some 1031s with personal property, but now you can't. So if, if Mr. Seller wants to not pay gain on his million bucks, you're not really helping him because he can't go buy like-kind real estate because he didn't, he didn't sell real estate. He sold shares of a company basically, which are membership units. So that's something to think in take in consideration. And then also there's gonna be a little extra filings for like tax returns, because John Smith LLC is gonna have to file basically two returns. You know, one, let's say you close on June 1st. Well, one before June 1st with Mr. John Smith getting a K1, and then another tax return from June 1st to the end of the year with Ferd on the K1, and Ferd and his investors on the K one. So does make it a little more complicated, but that is another strategy to mitigate risk. So as you can tell, there's a lot that goes into property tax projections. There's going to be lots of different opinions. I'd love to hear yours. Uh, you can get a list of this stuff by going to my website, mobilehomelawyer.com. And this is episode one. Stay tuned or just let the let the tape roll. And we're going to jump into property tax appeals, which can help solve your problem if these strategies didn't work for one reason or another.
1: All right. Thanks for that, Ferd. And thank you for listening today. And we look forward to having you back on the Red Podcast. As always, invest wisely.
0: Thanks for listening to the Real Estate Diversification Podcast. Did you enjoy the episode? Visit www.rediversification.com to tune in to more exciting episodes and free information and tools that will help you succeed. Leave us a review and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and our other social media channels at the RED Podcast. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time. Missouri Bar Advertising Disclosure.